a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today we are joined by Tracy Volke in the Washington, D.C. area. Tracy, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me today. Oh, we're so excited to have you. I have met Tracy only twice in real life, but I feel like I've known her a lot closer than those two encounters would allow. She and I both serve in the Army on what's called the SOG, a Survivor Advisor Working Group for Army Survivors. So her husband died in the military, my husband died in the military, and those connections that we have formed with other military survivors have brought us together. And Tracy, I'm so grateful that you'll join us today. You are a fierce advocate for all of us in the survivor world. You've got legal background and expertise. You've got great compassion and understanding, and you are tenacious. And I love you, and I am really grateful that you're here and willing to help all of us learn a little more about you and your husband, Paul. So without any further ado, I'm wondering if you can just kind of introduce yourself. Tell us about you and Paul, how you met, your family, a little bit of background. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for having me. The admiration is certainly mutual. I appreciate all you do for the survivor community. We wouldn't be where we are without you, Jenny. So thanks for that. And thanks for telling our stories. So I met my husband, Paul, when I was 17 years old in high school. And I didn't know much about the military at all. I didn't come from a military family. I just knew I was dating this boy. And um, we had a wonderful relationship. And he was serious and kind and really a special soul. And a few weeks before we were getting ready to graduate from high school, we were both the same age, he told me that he would be attending West Point. And I really didn't know much about the military or what West Point was or what that meant. I just knew that I really loved him and wanted to see if we could make a relationship work. Um, so, Tracy, so, where did you guys live? Where was home at this for this high school? We both grew up about 20 minutes from West Point, actually, oh. in a little town called Monroe, New York. It's in Orange County, New York. Okay. And so, you know, I knew the school was there, but, again, didn't really know anything about the military sure. or what a life in the military would be like. And if I am correct, you're not allowed to get married while you're in West Point in the military academies. Is that true? That's true. That's okay. true. And um, I was going to be heading to law school after we graduated. So we definitely wanted to wait to get married. And and that's actually an interesting story because uh, we both graduated college in 1998. And then we had to sort of figure out 
where can I go to law school where he might be stationed? Um, oh, my goodness. And so West Point, they get to pick where they want to go based on your class rank, you know, before you graduate. And so we were matching up law schools to posts and we picked for him to go to Fort Drum and me to start law school at Syracuse University. And, you know, like everything in the military, you can make all the plans you want. But I did go to Syracuse and I, I finished my first year of law school. And then they decided not to send Paul to Fort Drum. They actually kept him at Fort Benning, Georgia, where he was training to be an infantry officer. So, oh, no. So um, you're in New York and he's in Georgia. That's, that's right. not close. And no, <laughs> it's not close. I love to tell this story because it's one of my favorite memories of that time because it was a stressful time trying to make a relationship work and study. And so I decided to transfer law schools to University of Georgia. And I applied about four days before classes started. And they called and said, are you really going to come? And I said, I I guess. And so we packed up my car and we moved me to Georgia. And that was still going to be about three hours away from Fort Benning. And I remember a very hot August day. And we had to pull over to get somewhere that had some air conditioning. And I, I didn't have anywhere to live. And we see a pickup truck and it has a bumper sticker saying, I'd rather be shooting Yankees. And I oh, was no. terrified. You're like, like, what have I done? Are you leaving me? <laughs> yes, what have I done? Exactly. But he did. I knocked on a girl's door who needed a roommate a few months ago. She had said she needed a roommate and she became a great friend of mine and finished out law school there in Georgia. Oh, my goodness. I love that. So you dated a long time. Yeah, all through high school, and then we got married in between law school. Okay, so what year were you married? You both graduated college in 1998. When did you get married? In 2000, in okay. January of 2000. Perfect. All right, so then what What does married life look like? What is family life? What did right. the military so, look like once training was done? Yeah, so we went ahead and got married, and I was I still had a year and a half of law school left, so we lived apart for that year and a half. And then I graduated law school in 2001 and was so excited to move back to Fort Benning and finally be with my husband. And a few weeks after I moved there, he broke the news that he'd be deploying to Kosovo for six months. Oh, my goodness. So our plans were sorted. And I had to yet again, the Georgia. Yet again. (laughs) And I studied and took him past the Georgia bar and began working and clerking for a federal judge down near Fort Benning. Okay. So he went to Kosovo. You stayed. You passed the bar. You're working. What did the next few years bring? He came back. He redeployed and then had to go to ranger school. And we got pregnant with our first child. And then he wound up spending about five months in ranger school. And so he returned from ranger school graduated and I was due to have my baby that very day. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, never easy. And so wound up having our first child the Monday after he graduated. Oh, good. So he was there. He was there. Oh, he was half great. asleep, but he was sure. there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> half asleep and eating all of the food that people had brought for me because he was very hungry. Oh, um, that's hilarious. 
But a few weeks later, our wish came true. We got to go to Fort Drum, which is um, on the Canadian border. (laughs) Okay. I have a new baby, and we make our way up to Fort Drum. And I can't work because I'm not barred in the state of New York. So I start studying for the New York bar. But the second we got up to Fort Drum, he was given notice that he was going to deploy to Afghanistan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So... so you now have, yeah. you have two boys, right? I have two. We're, so, we're not at the part where the second one is okay, going Okay, so in. <laughs> we haven't even gotten there yet. All right. You get to New York. You have a new baby. You can't work as an attorney because as a military spouse, you're moving around all the time, and your bar exam was in another state. He goes to Afghanistan in what year? He went to Afghanistan in 2003, shortly after we got oh, to kind of at Fort the beginning. Trump. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's fairly early. So he's already been to Kosovo. Now he's in Afghanistan. Right. What's next? Quite the adventure. So, yes, it turned out to be a really tough time for us. He deploys. I'm studying for the bar. And then my father got diagnosed with leukemia at age 55. Oh, Oh, no. Um, And he would return from Afghanistan, but then redeploy shortly after to Iraq. Oh, my goodness. Um, And so I did study for the New York Bar. I took the New York Bar. I passed the New York Bar. That's good news. Yeah, that's impressive. Um, Well done. And I started work, and I started to work for the county attorney there in Jefferson County in Fort Drum. And then my father wound up dying while Paul was in Iraq. Oh, Tracy. And I was very close with him, and he was 55, and he was a fifth-grade teacher for 33 years in the same classroom. And really didn't get a chance to be a grandpa, which really, it was tough. Um, But at that time, Paul was a company commander. And then his brigade commander was then Colonel Milley. Okay. (laughs) And I'll never forget, so this sort of like morphs into my sort of theme for life, which is the only real thing we have in this world is our connections to each other and our connections to people. And during a pretty dangerous time in Iraq. Then Colonel Milley chose to allow Paul to come home to be with me for my father's funeral, which probably wasn't an easy decision. Um, You know, he's a company commander in charge of an area of operation, has soldiers, but it was so important to me. It's something I never have forgotten that even these tough, strong military folks, when push comes to shove, they're going to be there for each other. They're going to do the right thing. And, I was very, very fortunate to have Paul home with me to get through that, that I appreciate, time. I appreciate that you mentioned that because, of course, you and I know that then Colonel Milley is now General Milley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was previously the Chief of Staff of the Army, and this is a tough guy. This is a guy who's seen a lot of the worst. He's been involved in a lot of military politics things. And to show that softer, compassionate side, I appreciate you mentioning that because I think a lot of times a lot of us only know about the military from the movies and it's just tough and toughen up. But for him to take the compassion to say, you know what, Paul, go be with your wife for this difficult time. And Tracy, I'm sorry you lost your father. That was pretty quick then from that diagnosis to his passing. It doesn't sound like you had him for very long. Yeah, it was about six to eight months. um, But I remember he died right about two weeks after Thanksgiving. And so, yeah, it was tough. It was tough going through the holidays. With, you know, a sick father and your husband in harm's way, you know, not being there. I think 
there's a group of us in the military that live through these multiple deployments and it's tough on the psyche and it's not for everybody and not everybody can handle it well. And I don't know that I handled it well. And not every marriage can handle it. You and I know that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's no joke. I mean, the expectation that, you know, you have those factors of the most stressful events in your life on a scale and then. Yeah, and you have 20 of them. Yeah, the top five all at once. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about death. I mean, we're talking about, I remember at night waiting by the window, listening for a car to drive up, thinking that someone was going to say that that Paul was gone. And during his deployment to Iraq, he lost one of his lieutenants in a suicide bomb. Oh. Um, his wife was an MP and also a first lieutenant. And it really was really tough on Paul and tough on the family, obviously. And it was not an easy time. And when I look back at that time, and we haven't even gotten to Paul dying yet, I I wonder how I even made it through. Yeah. Tell me, like I said, I know you have a second child. When is your second son born in this timeline of these things? Because this is a lot. You've got birth. You've got moving clear across the country. You've right. got new career, you've got death of a father, deployment of a husband when it's already the third or fourth or fifth deployment. You have a second baby in there somewhere along the lines. And then, of course, yes. we know Paul does deploy again because, like you mentioned, we haven't even gotten to his own death. Right. So Paul got back from Iraq and we got pregnant when he came back and had my second child then in March of 2006. Okay. And just kind of like was typical for us. We had been, and then that summer we would PCS again. Yeah. So where did you move to that second time? So this time we moved to the Washington DC area. Okay. And Paul went to Georgetown to get his master's in public policy and then do an internship on the joint staff and the army staff. And it was just a wonderful time in our lives. I worked in DC for the DC attorney general Oh my goodness. Um, we had the young kids. Paul was able to spend a lot of time with the kids because a lot of his classes were at night when he was in Georgetown. So it really was a fantastic three years together after living through yeah. so much. Which can um, I just things. say, you working as an attorney in the D.C. area and him getting a master's at Georgetown. And that's like your calmest time with two right. little boys like that is that's the best. perspective. Yeah. But but like you said, you're at least together. He has time with the boys. You have time to work and be with your family. So let's take a quick break. This has given us some good background. When we come back, Tracy, we want you to jump into what happens after that kind of beautiful safe haven D.C. time. We'll be right back. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, 
Okay, only in a military world would what you've just described be the peaceful, calm, fantastic three years. Because <laughs> most of us are like, oh my gosh, a master's at Georgetown, then an internship at the Pentagon. Then you're working with the D.C. Attorney General. You have two little boys who at this point are still little and I'm sure energetic and rambunctious and, and needing a lot of attention, a lot of care. So that gets us from 2006 to about 2009. Was that more or less when you were in D.C. Yeah. and in his master's program? Yeah, 2009, we would move again to Fort Leavenworth for one year, which was another great year, really great year of family time. But um, now where, in I the, did have, where in the country is Fort Leavenworth? It's in Kansas. It's outside okay. of Kansas City. So you're moving all um, over. You're Georgia, you're New York, yeah. you're D.C., you're Kansas. I mean, again, yeah. for a lot of us who are listening that don't have that active duty military perspective, you're starting life over completely every two or three years and packing them up. Here yeah. we go. Absolutely. And the one thing, it was a great year, and I'm glad that we went because many military families choose to separate for those years for the kids, for stability, for oh. job security. And I did have to quit my really good job Again. in order to move. Yeah. yeah. And I had to wave into the D.C. bar. So at this point, I'm paying for three different states to keep up the, my bar memberships and to say Sometimes nothing of how would, difficult it is to pass the bar exam. It's not just the money. It's 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 the money. And, and getting a job isn't easy as well. So it's usually, you know, a couple months before you really start interviewing and finding a job. And then you work for two years and then have to move again. And so, yeah. you know, giving up the job in D.C. was tough financially. And it was tough on me because as career as a lawyer, I was determined to make a career as a lawyer and being married to an infantry officer. And it wasn't always the easiest. Yeah. And to say nothing of mother of two young boys. I mean, that, again, yeah. that's a lot. Okay. So Fort Leavenworth goes to 2009, 2010, then another deployment. Then we're back to Georgia, this time at a different post outside of Savannah at Fort Stewart. Okay. Um, and we were there for just a month or two and he would redeploy to Iraq this time. So he left for Iraq when we got there. And at this time, you know, I decided to get the boy settled and really that I wasn't going to work because he deployed so soon after we got there. But he would redeploy back home and then go back to Afghanistan. Okay, so, so wait a second. That's, that's mm-hmm. fast. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. he's in Iraq, what, 2011, 2010? He's in Iraq 2010 to part of 2011, and then he came home, and then he redeployed in January of 2012. So for those of us, I mean, even I, my husband was in the military. My husband deployed four times, which to me feels like 400. This is an incredible pace. You're moving every two or three years. You're deploying in some cases every year or two. You're in infantry, which isn't just busy, but also a lot and dangerous and, and frontline. I mean, infantry is infantry. So walk us through that deployment in January 2012 and, and what leads to you and me both being military widows. Yeah, so he was the executive officer of a battalion. And this battalion was actually the first mechanized infantry battalion that was reorganizing to support the special forces. So normally it's got, you know, big tanks and things, and now they're reorganizing, they're restructuring, and they're going to embed with a special forces unit in Madhuri Sharif, Afghanistan. He got three weeks notice. They moved him into this executive officer position 
So he had to, you know, get trained up and retrain all his troops and go ahead and deploy with them. So he deployed in January, and I really was actually strangely at peace with this life. I can talk about it now a little easier, but when I was going through it, I probably was a little more resentful than I sound now about having to reinvent myself every two to three years and having to make this career and be a mom and make sure that my children were taken care of. And so during the time, I probably was a little bit more resentful than I sound now. But at this time, for this appointment, I think I finally was at peace with, you know, I know I chose the right partner in life. I know I loved my family and I liked my life and I was happy. And I think when I finally sort of let my guard down and relaxed for a minute, that's when the inevitable happened. So I remember it was a hot June day and my brother-in-law had come into town to spend the weekend with my boys. They were six and eight at the time. And he had just come in. It was a Friday and they were outside jumping on the trampoline and we were getting ready to go to a minor league baseball game. So I remember what I was wearing. I remember thinking that the house sounded very quiet. I could hear the humming of the air conditioner, but it sounded peaceful and quiet. And I I just remember that moment. I was getting ready and the doorbell kept ringing and I thought the kids were surely telling me to hurry up. We have to leave. You're taking too much time. So I ran to the door to open it to kind of tell them to back off and I'd be ready shortly. And when I opened the door, I saw, I saw the two men in uniform and I knew exactly what that meant. And I shut the door right back at them and they, they rang the doorbell again and asked to come in. And I said, no, I had been the care team coordinator and was running our family readiness group. So I knew what everything meant and knew what, what was in store for me. And I, I thought to myself, you know, whether I, tell them to come in or not is not going to change this. So I opened the door and it's amazing how that one moment sticks in my mind as really such a drastic changing point in my life. Picturing that thinking you, like you said, you of all people, you're the one that's kind of the point person for the other families that's providing their care and help with the family readiness group is kind of the social network and community of the families of a military unit. Obviously, the officers are there for one reason and one reason only. What does that conversation look like when you let them in the house? Well, I think there was some you know, misinformation right away. I only heard certain parts, and I started making frantic phone calls. And I was telling people things, and they were saying, you're saying the wrong things, like, let's just take a moment. But I remember specifically knowing that I had to call Paul's mother. So Paul's father had died when he was just six years old of a brain tumor. Oh, my goodness. Um, And this is Paul's mother's first child. She has another son. And I just, all I could think about was her heartbreak, to be honest. Like, I was like, I I will deal with me, but I have to. I just, my heart broke for her in that instant. And she had remarried to a wonderful man, Griff, who my kids, never really knew that that wasn't their biological grandfather, you know. Yeah, just a wonderful, loving, wonderful, wonderful man. But I called 
and she didn't have her cell phone and I didn't say anything to him. I said, I need to talk to Lorraine. And he said, he could hear it in my voice. And he said, she's out at the store. And he's like, I need to go get her, don't I? And I said, yes. And he went to get her and they, they jumped in the car and drove down to me in Georgia immediately. And, you know, I just remember her arriving and looking at her and saying, I'm sorry. And she's saying, no, I'm sorry. And it was a really tough time. I mean, and I'm sure you remember too, Jenny, the first couple months are just a blur. I can't remember. It felt like years and then it felt like a day. Right. Um, no reference of time. Um, everything's foggy. I, everything's foggy. You don't eat. You don't sleep. You've got people in and out of your house for, you know, months. Right. And um, it's a very public process when your spouse is in the military. You know, everyone wants an interview or, and you don't know what to do. There's no rules. I mean, I remember them asking, the casualty assistance officer asking me, did I want my children to go to Dover to receive his remains? I said, I don't, you know, I'm not a psychologist. Like, is he, are they supposed to go? Can someone answer, you know, yeah. things that you never thought you would have to. Well, and you have to lifetime. decide and you have to decide so quickly and in the moment where there isn't time to really consider and consult. It's just, are you going or not? Who's going or not? I. It's I always interesting similar. to me because we've done several of these interviews the, the military family, I mean, you guys sign up for this and you know the possibilities, but then you don't talk about it with your spouse. And what is that day going to look like if, if something should happen? And, you know, you almost think there would be like a checklist that you yeah. at some point sit down and make with your spouse before deployment. If something should happen and you don't return, what does this look like? Yeah. And I think there's I a think lot of for them, decisions. And especially during this time with these rapid deployments, because before really 9-11, we weren't deploying that frequently. And then we all got into this just trying to survive mode. There was no pre-planning during this time in our lives anyway, even though I'm a planner and I, I actually do estate planning for a living now, but then <laughs> the we were irony. just trying to survive. Well, and the pace. Um, the pace of it, you like you said, there wasn't much of a break between deployments. You're just going from one to the next. And I know some people have had those conversations. I yeah. think that the planning conversations can be helpful, but nothing is quite like the moment of it happening. You know that, and you know a lot of times, and I know for Paul, in order for him to do what he had to do, I don't think he could let his mind go there. Sure, you know because he was a kind of operating on autopilot. Because he had work to do. And if he were to stop and think, you know, all these things could happen and where would Tracy go? I mean, we certainly had a will. I knew where he wanted to be buried. But I think for our mental state, we might not have been able to sort of dive into all of that. Yeah. I've, I've said that before, too. And, you know, especially for Brent, I know, I'm sure he must have known it would be a possibility to die. But it did not hamper his service as a soldier because he didn't mull over it over, 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 over again. So that's, that's right. a, a difficult, uh, a tough mindset that most of us couldn't couldn't quite handle. Tracy, we're going to take one more break and come back and have you walk us through. It's now been almost a decade from those early yeah. days. You've learned, you've grown. I'm sure you've been up and down, and we would love to hear a little bit about that and what resilience looks like to you. We'll be right back.
Tracy, walk us through. I know you know we could talk for hours and hours of the details of the last ten years, but can you give us some of the takeaways starting in the immediate aftermath of Paul's death up to today? Of what's helped, what have you learned, and what especially is resilience looking like to you and your boys? Yeah, so one thing that Paul and I used to talk about was I'm a pretty giving person, and I like to be a helper, and I help people, and sometimes at the expense of my own self and my own family. And, you know, we had that conversation. I'm the person who's someone's sick, and I'm making them homemade chicken soup and bringing it to their door, and that's just who I am. I love people, and I love my connections with people. And I am so grateful that that's who I am because in my moment of despair, my friends and my family that I developed these strong bonds with, they helped me get through this tenfold. I had a really good friend of mine who basically moved in for four months and she organized everything and paid all the bills. And to this day, I don't know that I could have done it without her. So our military friends are really the family that we you know, we choose when we're, you know, away and they're there for you. And Paul believes in that as well. He wrote an article about why he served for Veterans Day one year. And and it was, you know, the people. He stays because he loves people. And he feels like those who put on the uniform are some of the most dedicated, loyal people that you'll find in this country. And so... I think that our relationships with each other and our support of each other is what has gotten my family through some of the worst times of our lives and really allowed us to be able to survive. I would love to read that article. I always love to hear from soldiers their own perspective. I love that he maybe wrote that down and that you and your boys have that to see kind of what motivated him. And it's not left to chance. You don't have to think or wonder, but he, he maybe gave you some insight into that. That's beautiful. Tracy, what is resilience to you? You now work, like I said, you are tenacious in helping other military families in your, in your geographical region, in your professional career. You now live in the D.C. area again. Tell us what you have learned about resilience and how you try to maybe live with that resilience in your own life. I think so many of us try to search for purpose and meaning in life. And I think that this purpose chose me. I didn't choose it. And the way I sort of make Paul's life worth it for me and my family is to help others. And so shortly after he died, I began working for the JAG Corps as a civilian attorney at Fort Stewart. And I do, um, I help soldiers and families and survivors with legal assistance issues, family law and estate planning, and many other areas. And helping soldiers and their families is the way that I am able to move on, but also feel like I'm still part of the military community because I think, and I know, Jenny, you were a reservist family, so you were in your community, but a lot of the active duty that have moved around, after the death, we have a year to move off a military post. And so you're not only dealing with a loss, but you're also dealing with a loss of community. You know, my kids grew up going to Hill and Farewells and barbecues on the military base and parties at military friends' houses, and and that was all taken away from them with their father. And so this is how I maintain a connection, but also how I give purpose and sense to my life. 
And so I have a different perspective in the work that I do because from a military spouse's side, I've seen as a mother of military children, I've seen it as a family support leader, and then I've seen it now as a survivor, and then I've seen it as an attorney. And so I sort of know the, the different angles besides actually serving myself that come into play with my work, and I think it makes me appreciate my clients very deeply. So I realized when Paul died, I had really good help from friends. Paul's uncle was a colonel in the Army, and he was at the Pentagon. So I had this amazing support. But through the years, I've learned other stories of people who didn't have such a great experience with making sure that their benefits were done correctly or things in the law that need to be changed that can help enhance the lives of our surviving families. And so... When I'm not working my day job, I've been really active in bringing those issues to advocates and figuring out if there's a policy change that can be made or a legal change that can be made because, you know, military soldiers are trained to fight wars. We're not trained to take care of bereaved families, but we have really good caring people who are smart and dedicated and want to make sure these families are taken care of. And if I can help connect those dots. That has been just a true honor in my life to be able to do. I love that. I love your unique perspective, your unique set of qualifications, and how you're putting them to work. And I love that you mentioned that's how you move forward and honor Paul and make sure his his life and his death are worth it by you helping other people. I mean, how beautiful is that? Can you tell us a little bit about some of this? You've mentioned your advocacy work, but I happen to also know that you and West Point graduates in general tend to be a really tight-knit as a class. And can you tell us about the 98 Fund from that class of 98 West Point group and, and some of the great work that you and some of Paul's classmates are involved with? Yes, and thanks for asking about that, Jenny. So when I got my casualty assistance officer, it was hand-chosen to be one of Paul's West Point classmates who was a fantastic man and so one of my best friends to this day and they had a nonprofit called the 98 fund that supports their West Point classmates and they very much wanted to do something for me and my boys after Paul died and they said you know can we buy them something can we buy them an Xbox or something like that and I said you know and his name's Mark and I said Mark what they need is time with men like their father that's what they've lost. They don't know how to use power tools. They don't know how to fish. They don't know how to do all those things that their dad would do with them. And out of that idea, they had since asked me to come on the board and help advise from the survivor perspective. But Mark, that first summer, took my oldest child up to Alaska where he lives. And they literally cut down trees and built a bridge and dedicated it to Paul. And that started the birth of something we call the Alaska Project, which is we bring survivors of military families up to Alaska, and we do a service project on our property, and we dedicate it to the fallen service member. Well, this idea took off so much that the last few years, other veterans, West Point classmates, doesn't matter if you went to West Point or not, want to do something to help build this camp that we're creating. So last year we had over a hundred volunteers fly in from all over the world 
to come help build these cabins. We built five cabins last year and dedicated it to different fallen service members. So we take the family that wants to come and we figure out what they're interested in and what kind of project they want to do. And then we create the project. I was literally cutting rafter beams with a saw. I never knew how to use it. And then my boys would come up also and help with the project. So we're building another five cabins this summer. And we've got six different organizations coming up this summer who are all doing projects on the camp. Wow. Um, Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Yep. So we'll have 10 cabins and cooking facilities and bathing facilities by the end of the summer. Six different weeks of different organizations coming through. And I think last time I checked, we had over 100 Gold Star families coming to the camp, building something. Then we go hike Gold Star Peak with Kirk Alkire, and which is a very strenuous climb up a mountain. I'm going to try to do it again this summer. But all veterans from the community come and we climb this together. And then we'll do some other fun things, other experiences in Alaska and have just a nice, fun week with our family. But then also be able to build something that they can go back and visit every year that's dedicated to their service member. We had one family come up a few years ago. Their dad had built plans for a tree house and they never got to build it. And we built a tree house and dedicated oh, it my to, goodness. to them. Okay, Tracy, I love this. I have loved watching you and I are Facebook friends and I see when you post photos of some of these projects or that hike or these cabins and I definitely want to learn more. I think your website is the 98fund.org, right? And we'll yes. we'll put that in our show notes and we'll put some photos. We encourage all of our listeners to look and find out and you know, maybe somebody's listening that wants to help donate or contribute to this project. I love that you're giving these young military surviving family kids not just an awesome experience, but you're letting them serve and you're letting them find some hope and some healing and some connection by serving. I mean, how beautiful is that when you talk about resilience and the opportunity to give back when you've lost so much? I don't think that's our first inclination. Someone who's lost so much, we feel like we need to give, give, give to them. You're giving them a chance to give back and how powerful that is, Tracy. I appreciate your example all the giving that you do, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again, families like mine who joined the military survivor world years after you have benefited from some of the legal and policy changes you have helped make. Uh, it's financially helped my family. It's helped my family in terms of benefits and the process, and I will forever be grateful and just grateful I get to know you and say, hey, Tracy's my friend. I know this amazing lady and so grateful for all that you've taught us and, and shared with us today and just wish you nothing but the best, you and those sweet boys. Thank you so much, Jenny. Like I said, the admiration is very mutual, and it's been an honor to work with you on the SOG and to work on these issues together. Well, someday I hope to come up to Alaska and see the 98 Fund. I know we're not we're not West Point or Infantry, but we're going to find a way. We'll just put us on your working no, crew. We're coming. Everyone is welcome. <laughs> it is not limited. We are coming. Well, thank you for joining us today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us on this journey with Tracy. Again, even for me, a, a military widow, holy cow, her military life exhausts me. To think of all the moving and all the deploying and redeploying and having a baby and taking a new bar exam and and just thank you, Tracy, and all the families like you that support our military members on the family home front side of things so that we can all be safe. I, I don't know that America will really ever fully understand what people like you go through so that men like your husband can defend us. But thank you very sincerely. 
To our listeners, thanks again for joining us. We're always looking for wonderful stories like this to share. And if you're listening, you probably have a story to share. You've been through something, you've learned, you've grown, you've stretched, you've faced the impossible, and yet you're still here. We'd love to have you share that with us. If you can find us on social media at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast, or you can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.